0: So, I was thinking about some of my favorite Christmases in all of my life, and uh, I don't know if you do that this time of year, but, um, you know, have you, any of you done that? Like, started thinking about your favorite memories from Christmas? Yeah? Some of you have? Okay. One of you have. Two of you have. This is great. The rest of you should do that. Take some time to think about it. It's actually okay. Spend some time <laughs> reflecting. And so I was doing that, and I, you know, I'm 41 years old, my wife is 42, and so we both have had 40-plus years of Christmases, and we've talked about the different, different memories that we have, and for me, you know, I think there's a lot of different things that have happened over the years that I would say are up there. I mean, there were times that I got, uh, any of you, like, had a really, really important present that you wanted, and you finally got it on Christmas Day? Anybody? man, what is wrong with you? Jeez, wake up. All right. How many of you have gotten what you wanted? And how many of you were excited that that happened? Okay, three of you. This is not working. Well, I remember I had a lot of those moments in my life where I'd have like this really big long list of things I wanted and I'd get it, you know, hockey sticks and uh, for me, when I was a kid, G.I. Joe's were the coolest thing ever, and so I remember getting all the G.I. Joe's I wanted and being happy and all that, and that wasn't the favorite thing, but there were times where there were food. Uh, it was also really cool. In my family, we, we did this thing where we would have our Christmas, but then we'd go on Christmas Eve, we'd go to my, my dad's parents' house, my grandparents, and have Christmas over there, and my grandma is Japanese, and so she didn't do Turkey or things. We got crazy good Japanese food. And so we go over there and have this big Japanese feast. It was amazing. But none of that was my favorite Christmas memory. My favorite Christmas memory was when I was eight years old and my dad, out of the kindness of his heart, because of his deep love for my mother, he bought her a snowmobile and then spent all of Christmas morning driving it for her. That was my favorite Christmas memory. And the reason why was because I remember at that age that I knew I was going to eventually get to drive that snowmobile too. And so I just remember waiting all day long while my dad and my uncle were out driving those snowmobiles, breaking them in for my mom and my aunt and I knew that one day I'd be able to use them. And sure enough, I did eventually get that. I got it handed down to me when the next year my dad bought another one for my mom. It was amazing. And I remember all of those, those childhood uh, Christmases because of these little things like that where, where, where we get to see or we get to experience some sort of joy. And I think that that's one of the things that I love about Christmas. And I've shared this before that my relationship with Christmas has gone full circle. I used to be really frustrated because of Christmas because it's so commercialized and and all that. But now I am no longer a Grinch. I actually love Christmas. I think Christmas is really great because it celebrates the birth of Jesus. And so there's a lot of, of things about Christmas that can frustrate us, but I love everything about it. And so this morning we start Advent. We're starting to, to observe this liturgical, um, I guess, uh, season of the church. And I don't think we should underestimate the power of these themes. So the four themes historically or traditionally about Advent are hope, peace, joy, and love. Those are traditionally the, the themes that we spend Advent focusing on. And they're all uh, themes that are, that are, I think, you know, fleshed out as we see the story of Jesus' birth, the incarnation. And, and I think this is what marks the true followers of Jesus. When, when we talk about being a follower of Jesus, I think that the Bible makes abundantly clear that we should be known for having hope, we should be known for being people of peace, we should have a joy, and then we should be marked by love. Those four themes should be how we also live our lives, right? That's, that's because Jesus did that. And so I love Advent because it helps us orient our, our minds and our lives and our hearts and our, and our emotions around these themes that are, that are so important. So I think we need to spend some time really leaning into that. And, and I love that the season of Advent is right now because at this point in time, nothing could be more needed in our world, amen? than these four themes. And so today's reading is going to be from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And so I'm going to read this, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time fleshing it out a bit. So John writes these words. He writes, In the beginning the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except God. Through him, the word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion Or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the Word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory the glory of the Father's one and only Son. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. And Heavenly Father, as we've gathered this morning and we just read this beautiful passage of Scripture that that speaks and, and teaches and addresses the incarnation, the idea that God became a human being forever, through the birth of Jesus. As we we read this passage and we reflect on it, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to orient our lives around the reality of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. I pray that you would help us to understand why this is such an important teaching as well as how it applies into each and every one of our lives. And so we thank you for your Spirit's presence and we ask that you would continue to grace us this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, you know, the thing about Advent is that it does celebrate the incarnation, or at least in liturgical language, it observes the Advent, the, 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 the moment where Jesus comes in the flesh. and. You know, Advent is the first season of the liturgical calendar. In fact, if you grew up to, in a church that had a liturgical, um, I guess, practice or worship, you'd know that this is one of those seasons. And then there's Christmas and then uh, other, uh, other uh, events on the Christmas or the Christian calendar would be like Lent and Easter and ordinary times. It's the start, though. What's fascinating to me is Advent is the start of of the worship calendar for the church. And I think what could be more appropriate right now than having a season of new beginnings that causes us to pause and reflect upon the coming of Jesus? I think we need that. So this new season focuses on the incarnation. Incarnation. The advent, the the coming of God in the flesh, which is what incarnation means. God incarnated himself, he enfleshed himself. And this is where we begin to meditate and reflect on the reality that God became a human being. And, and the thing that I, I want to just remind you is that Jesus didn't become a human being and then stop being a human being, but but Jesus became a human being forever. And I was thinking about that this. This week and reflecting on on that reality, the incarnation. And a a friend of mine mentioned it'd be like this, um, you know, because it's hard for us sometimes to to understand the gravity or the depth of what that that means, the incarnation. Um, But how many of you, when you were a kid, played with Legos or, you know, Lincoln Logs? Any of you remember Lincoln Logs? How many of you liked building things, though? Right, like you'd put together and you'd build these elaborate you know, cities, and when I was a kid, I used to always build, like, airports and and fighter jets and things like that. But what we look at that, and we might, when we get done, we might be like, oh, that's really beautiful. That's really cool. But how many of us would become Legos in order to save our Legos? Like, no one would do that, right? It seems absurd. But that's what the incarnation is. It's where God creates human beings... And then in order to save human beings, God becomes one of us. I mean, it is pretty, pretty amazing, and it's pretty, I think, um, beyond uh, understanding in many ways. But that's what we have. We have God becoming a human, be- human being, joining himself to humanity in order to rescue and redeem it. And so what I, what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about five reasons why the incarnation matters. And I want to talk about it because I really do believe that theology should be practical. And so the last, you know, four months, 3, three or 4 months that I've been teaching this course for this university in New Zealand, we've been talking about how theology matters because theology is simply how we communicate and talk about God and how we think and talk about God matters. It greatly matters. In fact, it is what causes us to to either think things that dishonor God or perhaps it's important to point out that bad theology hurts people. But I think theology matters. But oftentimes when we think about theology, it's disconnected from the real world and so, like, you know, we might think about the incarnation and say, yeah, the incarnation, Jesus became human. Oh, isn't that cool? And then we go about our, the rest of our, our day and our lives, and we don't think about why it's so important that the incarnation uh, shapes our understanding of who God is as well as our lives. And so I want to talk about some practical application here about the incarnation. And so I've got five reasons why the incarnation matters. And the first reason is this. The incarnation demonstrates that God is for us. The incarnation demonstrates that God is for us as human beings. Now, I have, I have run into many people in my life who, who say things like, well, I could never, ever come to your church because as soon as I stepped in the doors, the building would fall down. Anybody ever have somebody say that to them? Or like, yeah, your church might be okay for most people, but I'm really bad. You know, like I, I, I just would never, ever be able to step foot into your church building. And, and I think it's interesting because I think there's a lot of people out there that their concept of God is deeply flawed because they see God as this cosmic killjoy. Up in heaven, just looking to rain down thunderbolts of lightning that are very, very frightening. Right? I mean they have this idea that, that God is 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 so upset at humanity and is just wants to destroy us. And and it's like this idea that you know if you've ever been around an ant hill, anybody ever been around an anthill? It's hard not to just destroy it, isn't it? I would never do that. Ever. But my kids might. <laughs> but it's like we we think of God through that lens where he's really upset and angry at us all the time and there's there's no actual love he has for human beings. But what we see in the incarnation is that the incarnation again demonstrates that God is for us. And this is something that the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, which is amazing. He says, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? And he's talking about the full scope of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He says, if God is... For us, just think about that. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? That's a fair question. It's a fair question. Since He did not spare even His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, won't He also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for His own? No one, for God Himself has given us right standing with Himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does anybody know the answer to that? It's no, there's nothing. And so in order for Jesus to be able to die for us, Jesus had to be born for us. And the incarnation Helps us understand that God is for us. Number two, the second thing that I think is practical here is the incarnation demonstrates that God understands us as well. You know, so on one hand, I think it's fair to say, well, obviously God can understand us because he is God, right? I mean, God is, if God is God, then God can do whatever. Whatever he wants, and he can know whatever he wants. But on the other hand, what I think we see here is that even though he's God, God also understands us because he has experienced life as a human being. He's experienced life just like a human being. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4. He says, this high priest, Jesus, of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Now, I think it's super common for people to think of God as being so holy and so transcendent that they assume that he is far removed from our human, human experience in this hostile world. And so oftentimes it's this idea, well, you know, I can't really go to God with my struggles because there's no way that God would ever be able to understand uh, and, and help me out. But the author of Hebrews here anticipates this assumption and, and makes it abundantly clear that we have a Savior with an unequaled capacity to empathize, empathize with us in all of our human weaknesses. I mean, he, he just nails that right on the head. And this is how another theologian talks about this. Listen to this. This is what N.T. writes. Commenting on Hebrews, he says, He was, Jesus was and remains one of us, a truly human being who still remembers what it was like to be weak, to get sick, to be tempted over and over from every angle. Don't make the mistake that some Christians have made of imagining that Jesus, having become human, in the incarnation stopped being human after his death. One of the central beliefs of the early Christians, not least in this letter and those of Paul, is that Jesus remains fully and gloriously human and that it is as a human being that he rules the world. When Jesus represents us before the Father, he isn't looking down on us from a great height and being patronizing about those poor creatures down there. He can't really do much for themselves, who can't really do much for themselves. He can truly sympathize. He has been here. He knows exactly what it's like. Now, friends, I want to tell you that when we think about that, it really does change the dynamic of prayer, doesn't it? So right now, think of the greatest struggle that you're facing right now? Think about it. What's the greatest struggle, the greatest frustration you have, the greatest weakness that you have? What you need to know is that Jesus also was a human being, and he faced all of the challenges and and weaknesses of being human also, and that's why we can go to him in prayer. So we we have a number of reasons why the incarnation matters. The third reason is because the incarnation demonstrates that God can redeem all of us one of the big debates big huge debates in the early church the first 300 years of church history was in trying to understand Jesus trying to understand like who was he and and how was he God and how was he human and and how did the relationship between his his human nature and his divine nature how do those things work together and there were all these different debates by church leaders trying to wrestle, wrestle that out and figure it out. And, and this is what's fascinating is that there was a group of, of early Christians who started to say things like, well, Jesus became human, but just in his physical body. His mind was divine. Or there were some other Christians that talked about how Jesus became a human for a little while, and then he, he gave up his humanity later when he ascended. But the Orthodox Church, the, the church at the end of those debates um, came to the realization and the conclusion through studying scripture and having all these discussions is that Jesus was 100% human and 100% divine and his, his divine and human nature were always, they were always together and they did not change and every aspect of who Jesus was, was both human and divine, his body and his mind. His soul, every component of Jesus' being held that, that tension of being both fully God and fully human. And so this is the implications for the incarnation, though, is that there were some people who said things like, well, you know, Jesus, he, he can bring salvation to our, to, our, to our minds and to our souls, but he can't bring salvation to our physical bodies because, you know, he wasn't fully fully human. Or they would say that he could bring healing to our physical bodies, but not our our minds. And the early church fathers and mothers, as they wrestled with this, they came to this assumption or this statement that whatever whatever is not assumed cannot be redeemed. Meaning that the reason why Jesus can give you salvation in every aspect of your life is because Jesus was fully human in every aspect of his life. Does that make sense? Like our souls are his and we can have salvation because Jesus' soul was fully human and fully divine. Same thing with his body and with his mind. And so in other words, if Jesus is only partly human, he can only partly provide salvation. But because Jesus was fully human, he can provide all of our salvation. Number four, the incarnation demonstrates that we need to reassess and renew our understanding of beauty. You know, we live in a world that celebrates beauty, and all day long, many of us are on social media, scrolling through pictures of people who are putting their best foot forward. I mean, like, I truly, and I'm, this is, we're all part of this, but it's fascinating. Like, I have not seen too many people share pictures of their sick kids on Instagram, right? It's always like, oh my gosh, best life now. You know, living the dream. Check out these tacos I just ate, and then I get mad because I don't have tacos, right? But that's like what we see all day long. We have these, the world is telling us what is beautiful, and and we're buying into that. But the question I think we need to ask ourselves is what defines beauty? And, 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 and how should we understand beauty in light of the incarnation? The incarnation actually demands that we reassess beauty and we reassess our understanding of what is beautiful because most of the Christmas story is quite ugly by the standards of the world. Let me give you a couple examples. Young, unwed person becomes pregnant. That's, that's a part of the story that's like, wait, what? You know, or or think about this, this blows my mind. Jesus, fully God, King of kings and Lord of Lords, worthy of all praise and adoration, the one whom all of eternity will be worshipped. The angels surround him. That King of Kings is born in a manger. Like it, it doesn't make much sense because as I've pointed out in the past, if you and I had our choice of how we would be born, how would we choose things? I'm going to be born a zillionaire. Anybody else willing to admit you would pick the higher things in life? Right? I mean, we would. Be honest. You would, you would not choose to be born to an unwed young mother and an a older man in ancient Israel to in a time when there was no room in the inn. You and I would not do that. Can we be honest? But Jesus does. And it's beautiful. When you have the lens of the kingdom, that story becomes beautiful. And all of a sudden, we have to reassess how we understand beauty. And this is a fascinating thing that Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, prophesies. He foretells hundreds of years before Jesus is born. He speaks these words in Isaiah 53 He says, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. And so when we come to the story of the incarnation, I again ask what defines our understanding of beauty because with the right eyes, we see Jesus, the incarnation, the the whole story of Christmas as, as as beautiful, and his life is the greatest example of beauty of all other lives. And so we have to think deeply about how the incarnation demonstrates that we need to reassess and renew our understanding of what beauty actually is. And I think one one maybe way to think about that, maybe on a practical level, is, is I know people who have said things to me before where they're like, well, God just would never, ever accept me. I have too many, too many, too many hang-ups and too many issues, and I'm not a beautiful person. I'm not shiny. I don't, I don't have anything to offer. And let me just tell you right now, it that is, that is so far from the truth. According to Scripture, Jesus sees all human beings as having intrinsic value because They were created in his image and he loves them deeply. Amen? And so we need to reassess our whole understanding of beauty, which kind of goes into the fifth thing that I think we can learn from the incarnation, which is the incarnation demonstrates that God isn't afraid of us and our messes. And this is the part of the incarnation that I think you need to hear this morning. Jesus is not afraid of your mess. Jesus is not afraid of the mess of your neighbors or your family or your friends or even the people that you don't really like. Jesus is not afraid of any of those things. You know, there was this really great book uh, a number of years that came out that when I saw the title, I mean, I bought the book and I kind of flipped through it. But I mean, really, I didn't need any more than the title because the title to me said everything about what the church is church's outward um, lean should be. In the phrase or the title of the book was No Perfect People Allowed. No perfect people allowed. And the author was essentially just saying, hey, listen, the church is not a place for perfect people. I don't know if you've ever heard it, you know, some people say that if you are looking for the perfect church and you think you found it, you just ruined it by starting to go there. You ever heard that? Yeah. It's true though. Like churches are not places for people who have it all together. I venture to guess that some of you think that that's kind of the thing, you know, like, i got to go to church, have it all together. But I venture to guess that many of you have discovered along the way that the reason why you're part of a church community is that you've discovered that you don't have it all together and you need to come in contact with the one who does and to be in a community with people who also are self-aware enough to say that we need grace, Amen. And so that's the whole thing about the incarnation, I think. That, that's, that's what we see is that God isn't afraid to enter into Lego Land in order to save the Lego kingdom. Like, it's amazing, folks. It is absolutely, truly amazing that Jesus would enter into our world, our story, and redeem us despite all of our flaws, our messiness, our ugliness, our our problems. Jesus doesn't care. He says, I'm still going to redeem these people because these people are deeply loved. They are deeply loved. And so no matter what your background or your past or what you are currently struggling with, I think that's the, the, the thing we can get from the incarnation is that Jesus proves that he is not afraid of your stuff. He's not afraid of it. Let's stand up together Just for a moment, if you wouldn't mind, just closing your eyes if you're comfortable with that. On um, Thanksgiving Day, the students that I have in this course, uh, in this theology course, they're all in New Zealand, and New Zealand doesn't have Thanksgiving. So I still had to do my little hour and a half class and um, one of the students we were just doing a Q&A and one of the students was was posing a bunch of questions from the, the lectures that I and the, uh, the the reading I've assigned and the question was essentially about the Holy Spirit and the question was related to how do I I just have a hard time conceiving of praying to the spirit or talking to the spirit and and um I get, I get God the Father and I get, I get Jesus, but I just don't understand the Spirit. I just have this, this feeling that the Spirit's like this force, you know, and not a person. And so I read that passage that I read earlier where Paul talks about having the grace of Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit. And folks, let me tell you right now that the only way that we are going to be able to continue to operate as people who are deeply impacted by the incarnation, who are known for having hope, peace, joy, and love, is by the power of the Spirit. It's the only way. And right now, we all probably are exhausted, and the anxieties are through the roof, and the frustrations, and the anger, and the, and the confusion, and, and depression now is that think an all-time high, and there's people who are struggling with alcohol and drugs and other things to anything that replaces our, 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 I guess, our leaning into Jesus. All of those things are on the table right now. And let me just tell you right now that I really truly believe that the only answer is Jesus, and the only way to live the Jesus life is by the power of the Spirit. And so I just really feel compelled to pray for you this morning to to really receive more of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. In Luke chapter 11, um, Jesus teaches his disciples and says, how much more will God the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so I'm just going to pray right now. And if that's you, if you're here and you'd say, yes, I want more of the Holy Spirit's power in my life. I want more of the Holy Spirit's presence in in my life. I want to have more of a relationship with the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, I'm just going to pray this prayer, and you can can receive it. And so, Father, I pray right now for everybody in this room, Lord, for those who, who are standing right now and have it in their hearts to have more of your presence, more of your power, more of a relationship with you. I pray that right now, God, you would begin to pour out your spirit all over this room. You know, as we're standing here with everybody's eyes closed, heads bowed, you know, one of the things that I have found to be true in my life is that connecting my heart and my body and my mind, sometimes there's things that I can do to help that. And so in the vineyard, oftentimes we would, you know, say that one way to, to be outwardly receptive is to just lift our hands like we're receiving a gift. And if you want to do that right now, I just encourage you to feel free to do that. And so, Lord, for those who are just lifting their hands right now, Lord. This isn't an outward sign to make anybody around us think that we're more holy or spiritual, but we are just wanting to say more, Lord. We, we long for your presence. We want more of your presence. Lord, we need more of your presence. And so I pray right now that you would just fall on each one of us, God. I pray for for hope in this room. God, I pray against all odds and all personal experience right now, I pray that there would be an overwhelming sense of hope right now in our hearts and in our minds. That everybody in this room that's felt hopeless, that's felt discouraged, that's felt depressed, who's felt empty, who has felt confused, discouraged, Lord, I pray right now that you would you would bind those feelings, that you would remove those feelings, and that you would replace those feelings with, with the knowledge of hope, peace, joy, and love. I pray right now that you would flood each person in this room with those different awarenesses, God. And Lord, we take a moment right now and pray for your kingdom to come. Just as Jesus taught us to, to, to pray that your name would be made holy, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven because your kingdom is coming. We pray that your kingdom would come. We pray for healing for those who have sicknesses or, or other challenges that need your healing power. We pray for, for grace. We pray for wisdom, and we pray for kindness. And God, now as we transition from this gathered space of worship, I pray that you would go with each one of us, that as we, as we linger in this room and in, in the foyer together, that we would be able to safely encourage one another and, 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 and fellowship, God, and just to, to live in the, the light of your kingdom. I pray that you would help us in our jobs, in our school, in our relationships, God, everywhere everywhere we go from this space, God, I pray that you would would help us, Lord, as we continue forward. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people who agreed said amen. Folks, have a great week, and we will see you next Sunday, 10 a.m. God bless all of you.